Greetings, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, is my co-host and co-DM, McGill. And uh, we are here on the 11th of May, uh, 2021. We got COVID vaccination shots booked uh, within the next Stab me. bit. So that's that's neat. That that's something we just uh, confirmed. You know and what we need? We need a new COVID rogue class where they can backstab you, but with the vaccination, the good kind of backstab. Uh, that seems a bit much for a whole class, or it seems a bit little for a whole class. You know what I mean? It's like that could be like just like I don't know a feat for rogues. I suppose uh, so. I feel like this hypothetical class does have a lot of uh, utility these past couple of years. But you know what, actually? So I, in my game, one of the things I've done is I've started to, well, actually, in the world of Drail, um, the, like, highest levels of the MPOC have begun to work uh, instead. Well, they've improved the existing health potion formulas initially, but then beyond that, um, they've begun to experiment with what are basically stim packs as healing items to replace uh, potions. And it occurs to me that you could make a really decent feat out of having a rogue-only feat, which is like you can use your cunning action, which is like your bonus action that you can use to dash, hide, or disengage, you can, you add to the that list of things um deliver a stim pack so that you can deliver a stim back to a friendly as a bonus action and then you could do it as like i, I don't know how you'd flavor this but you could add sneak attack damage but in healing it's almost like a cleric rogue sort of a thing um, you could call it. This won't hurt a bit. Or, Heal or, from the shadows. I don't. I don't feel a thing. I didn't feel a thing. <laughs> I feel great. I don't know why. This might pinch a bit. Uh, <laughs> man. Uh, did, I, did I tell you that joke? I went to my dentist, and he said, "This is going to hurt a bit. Are you ready?" And I said, "Yeah." And he said, "Yeah." Sleeping with your wife. <laughs> you, you said that one on. Uh, I think that's how you started our our last session of uh, Ashes Against the Grain, and nobody really reacted. We were just like, kind of exhaling. This is the most reaction I've ever gotten off that joke. But hey, it was topical. I mean, it would be terrible podcasting if I just let that sit. Um, You're not above that. I guess not. Uh, it's just like dead air, and then well, anyways, moving on. Um, this is episode sixty, by the way. Uh, I have brought Operation Brass Petals, which get this is the end of Act Two. We spent all this time in Kenya <sighs> in Alzaces, and they are finally going to be leaving. Finally, going to be wrapping up in there. Um, meanwhile, you're starting a whole new campaign. Yeah, this is a, a longer haul one, uh, like two dozen sessions or so. It's pretty exciting. And uh, more 
classic fantasy D&D in a classic fantasy D&D setting, Greyhawk. You gonna hit us with the name of that campaign? The Fate of Istis. Yeah, I know you'd said it before, I, but I, I was waiting for yeah. that, you know. The, the that, Fate of Istis, because I based it heavily off of a module uh, for AD&D called The Fate of Istis, but I deviate significantly from that module. Now I'm, I'm still drew, still drew key inspiration from it. I just got to jump out and say, I feel like when you do uh, a written, like a published campaign, but then you do your own version of it, you should take the name and just deviate it slightly to make it, um, like, your own thing you know uh example the, the destiny of this that's what i was gonna say is yeah. I, I was gonna say was it based on a campaign called the destiny of Istis? but then you said what it was but like um no we'll call this one the destiny of Istis. i'm i'm big so so i've i'm a big fan of doing this and i've i think i've always kind of done it um even in games that i played in that my friends have run so like my friend was running who played chessy was running Horde of the Dragon Queen, and I called that Horde of the Dragon Force, because um, Dragon Force. Um, Through the fire and the flames. And then, you know, part two is Rise of Tiamat, and uh could call that Fall of Tiamat or something. Um, then, though you could only really call it that, like, retroactively, like, you'd have to finish the campaign and know that she gets defeated at the end. Um then, uh, although I think we just kept calling it Horde of the Dragon Force, or maybe just Dragon Force. Um, Dragon Force Z, maybe. Uh, there were some elements of Dragon Ball Z in it at some points. Then, um, like, so this is going to be later in Al's Aces, but later in Al's Aces, I start harvesting content from the second uh fifth edition published campaign the one that came after rise of tiamat which is uh the elemental evil campaign president uh, uh princes of the apocalypse and i changed that to emperors of the night side eclipse um and uh then yeah like maybe i'll do out of the abyss and i'll call it into the abyss you know the abyss stares back. Yeah, that too. Exciting. Yeah. Um. So. Yeah, and and then also in just like recently, because we were talking about what we've been up to today, and I've pretty much only been up to like video games and D and D stuff. So I can uh, tell you that I've been playing this wacky simple game. I think I mentioned it on the podcast last time. Um, a thousand years under the sun. It's only about three or four pages of rules. It's a doodle based world building game. Um, I played a couple of games of it. I played one with, uh, my brother, my sister and a friend of my brother's. Um, and then I played a game that didn't quite finish with, uh, Jess and Liam and our friend, uh, who I just know by his internet handle, Mr. Belb. And, um, <laughs> Then also, as a little experiment, because I wanted... There were some things about the system that I was curious about. Um, 
So for example, one thing about this system is that everybody is working with like you, everybody is working within arcs basically. So if someone sows a seed, creates a new element in the world, they create a new arc. And there is a list of arcs that the players can choose from. There's like a pool of arcs that the players start with um, that are limited to arcs of specific lengths. Each arc is divided into blocks. Um, it'll have, say, three blocks on one side for the rise of that um, world event, world fixture or civilization or what have you. There'll be an arc or, or a, a, you know, a climax or a, an apex up at the top in the middle. And then there will be as many blocks on the other side as there are uh, for, for the downfall of that thing uh, as there were growth. And um, at the beginning, you start with a pool of just like one very big arc and then like a few small ones. But as soon as you finish one of those arcs, any of those arcs in that starting pool, um, a whole bunch of longer arcs are added to the pool. But then there are no arcs added to the game after that. So there is a limit to effectively how many um, turns it is possible to have in a game of Thousand Years Under the Sun because there's only going to be so many blocks because there's only so many arcs, which got me curious about like basically mathing it out, figuring out like, because, because one thing I had run into playing the game before with, with friends and stuff is you get into situations where um, towards the end of the game, when like most of the arcs are filled in, you might have a situation where because of the choices that players have made, um, I I ran into one case where like in the first game I played my sister had a turn come up and there were no blocks that she could legally fill in because there's a rule about like if you have already added to the downfall of an arc you can't then add to that downfall again until everybody else has gone in that downfall of that arc and hmm. so that provide certain limitations and so you end up with like some unevenness where it's like okay well then this person can't go or there's like you you end with some people having more turns than others because the game ends before you can come around to other people's turns and that just got me curious about like what is sort of the ideal player number based on like the division of blocks and there's some of this is also like curiosity about there. there's design in the game about it's called a thousand years under the sun. Every turn is a hundred years, every go around of each player. And so once you have completed uh, 10 turns, that's supposed to be the end of the game, basically. Um, but, uh, you know, you might you and your group of players may want to play more and so, you know, you may decide, okay, we're not going to play for just a thousand years. We're going to play until all the arcs are filled in. Say that's what we did with the first game I played. And so, like, I, I was interested in sort of the ideal number of players for how you could get, like, 
the most out of the arcs. Like, for example, what I discovered was I think that there are exactly 66 blocks in total between all the arcs that you can unlock in the course of the game. And so theoretically, you could play a six-player game that goes for 11 turns. And that would be pretty much perfect. You'd go like, it would be 1,100 years under the sun. But it's like, that is, you fill in every block. Everybody gets a turn, assuming that you sort of like uh, choose your blocks carefully. This is the reason I did the experiment, is because I I did an experiment where I set up a sort of single-player game of 1,000 years under the sun, and then made up, um, instead of six players, I made up like six fa- like imaginary deities for the setting. And then on each of their turns, I tried to enact something in the world that like that deity that was in the purview of that deity. And what I found was like I had designed it so that every block could get filled in. Um, but then because of the way I put certain deities in certain blocks the rules because of the way the rules worked i still ended up with a situation where it's like oh someone can't make a move here and that's basically what i was experimenting for is like is there a foolproof build of the game one thing is uh we're going to be having a game coming up where we have three players and that's like another good theoretical player group for the game because then you get like at 10 years you're exactly halfway through the total number of blocks that you'll have access to um 33 out of 66 and so then we'll have created a world which is basically halfway through the total of its like potential uh growth as per the rules of the game and so yeah it's all just stuff that's like kind of theoretical to the design of the game and i guess part of why i was so curious about it is because like the game is on its surface very simple it's just like five pages it's like here's here's the rules for those arcs here's how you do your turns you use doodles it's very very simple but then you know there wasn't an advisory for how many players there should be or anything. And so that got me curious about like sort of the underlying mechanics and theory of the game, which like there's a fair number of credits on the title page. So like, I assume that this has gone through like uh, a decent amount of testing to get to the sort of formula that it has come to. Um, But then also I did another one of these sort of single player experiments But this is for another experiment I was doing, which is the game itself, like um, the rules that are presented are you basically take a piece of paper and you draw sort of a, a, a landscape across that piece of paper that you develop the history over. But, um, that got me thinking like maybe you could do a starscape version of that. And so I created a starscape map, um, in roll 20 and did sort of a, a solo run of that, um, which is interesting because then you're sort of working at a different scale. It's like um, one of the things I did was I sized planets so that most planets could just like... So so you would do a planet that is on the grid three by three. So then in that middle square, 
you can drop a token of what the species that lives there looks like. And then um, you can drop pictures of like what their ships look like around that planet. And then you do little, uh, you know, star routes from star to star, from system to system. And that's how you sort of build out that history, which was interesting as almost like it sort of communicates to you by its scope the sort of language that you have to speak in relative to the the base game um which is much more just like you put people down wherever they show up um because uh generally you want uh your races to be on planets um but yeah and so i've had a lot of fun sort of creating uh my own little imaginary settings with these uh experimental games of thousand years and uh yeah been having a lot of fun with that i look forward to playing it it sounds really cool something that i find really appealing about it is that you're sort of creating like you know the the bayo tapestry familiar with the bayo tapestry yeah i think so well you ever see uh robin hood prince of thieves yeah yeah, the opening credits are like panning across the famous Bayo tapestry and it's like depicting just this this timeline of of medieval history basically. You know what's and, so uh, funny I, is that you could way easier you could way more easily get my recognition by saying the Red Wall tapestry because the opening credits yeah. to the Red Wall cartoon were literally like panning across the the tapestry at redwall abbey that then would like as you see each thing it cuts to a scene from the series that like shows that thing happening Clooney well, the scourge fair, leading his army fair enough fair enough the redwall tapestry also applies i'm thinking of an actual historical tapestry uh, i mean this is the thing is that redwall tapestry is clearly just the bayo tapestry but with yeah. little <laughs> little animals but it's just like one of them is way more present in my life because i watched that cartoon <laughs> as a kid well regardless i like the idea that you're effectively creating that as the world building exercise obviously it's not quite as linear like moving from left to right but it, it would actually i'm tempted after we play um with our friend grant uh who we've mentioned before after we play i'm tempted to take the sort of final incarnation of of our doodles and then lay it out sort of left to right like its own tapestry and you know add like a, a rough cloth texture to it what I find idea. what I find is like perhaps the danger of this game is like pretty much every game I've played so far, including the solo games, like whether it's after the game or during the game, like at any turn or point in the history's timeline that we've created. I'm just thinking like this would be great to do a D&D campaign in. Like any point in these timelines is so interesting because it's like this collaborative exercise that just sort of goes off wherever our imaginations take it. And that's just it, right? Is that then you can use that tapestry as a big piece of, of world history in the, D, you know, the game you DM within the world you've created. I actually, um, I, for my first sort of solo uh, experiment... I did, after I did the experiment, lay out kind of like an outline 
of a mini campaign set in that world, like what it would look like. And it's basically like uh, a sort of like, you know, like Far Cry Primal, like like a D. It's like a prehistoric times D&D in a world where uh, you're like nomadic tribesmen and the biggest threats are giants in the north and vampires in the eastern deserts. And, uh, you know, you're trying to, like, you're you're leveling up at the same time you're, like, beefing up your nomadic tribe and, like, bringing people to your, to your uh, you know, into your fold, into the fold of your uh, group and uh, building important things for the tribe and uh, all that stuff. And, of course... super cool. I mean, gathering... Far Cry Primal, how about Jen D. Tartakovsky's Primal? But yeah, yeah, that too. Setting? Um, that too. Uh, I guess I was, yeah, I, I guess I was thinking of Far Cry Primal cause I saw something about it recently. Um, but also like, I, I think Far Cry, well, well, I guess the thing about Primal is that I think of it as a very like solo adventure, like because of the way, you know, uh, God, what's his name is is going around on his own pretty much. It's like Spear and Fang. Yeah, yeah. Spear's pretty much like doing his own thing most of the time. Whereas like in Far Cry Primal, I think they still had like the outpost system. And so mm-hmm. you're like beefing up a tribe. But but um the other thing, I, I didn't even say the thing that was like the main pitch to you. This setting has like you would also be accumulating beasts uh for your tribe. So you'd be getting mammoths and uh and dinosaurs and stuff. You could be a, a raptor riding barbarian or, or like a, a, a rogue or a, man, I don't know. Dope. It, this, this again reminds me of an idea that we discussed previously in a, in one of our taverns about psychic dinosaurs and making me go like dino riders campaign. That'd be the best. Yeah. But this wouldn't be like high tech. This would be like, you know, straight up like well, primal start. <laughs> but primal but but there would be uh yeah there's vampires and there's yeah yeah it's it's cool stuff and this is all just stuff like i made from a day of just drawing on a piece of paper and doing this little game it's amazing what uh just having a handy framework like that can do for your inspiration i mean i've said it before it's like if i don't have something like that i just get option paralysis and i never I don't know what to make. <laughs> even for like in fairness, even for each step that I did in my little solo games, I was basically just like I would find lists of I, I went to like the Crusader Kings wiki. So like for the the one that became like the tribal game, um, I was looking through the Crusader Kings wiki at like the different holding upgrades for nomadic capitals and tribes uh, to get inspiration on like things that could constitute growth within each uh, arc, you know, um, because without that, I'm just like, well, what do they do? Uh, they could do anything. They could, they could grow tentacles. They could, uh, they could start worshiping demons. They could, uh, you know, they they could get visited by aliens. It's all, all of happened. the above. Yeah. I can't, I can't, I can't let myself go like that. That's crazy. So do you want to start off with your new campaign? Sure. So I mentioned it on our last episode, but I'll reiterate the, the kind of 
the the overarching plot, the glue that holds this whole campaign together. Um, and I've already name-dropped the Fate of Istis campaign module from 2nd edition Dungeons & Dragons. Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. I beat Dungeons & Dragons and it was advanced. Um, and the... The Fate of Istis campaign module was designed as a way of transitioning players and their characters from first edition Dungeons and Dragons into advanced Dungeons and Dragons. And so the overarching plot of that module is Istis, the goddess of fate, is toying with the people of, you know, whatever D&D realm you're setting it in. And She's putting them through these trials and then based on how they come out the other side, changes are made to different classes. Uh, all of the, the missions, all of the adventures in the Fate of Istis campaign end with something happening to a specific class. So there's a trial where uh, it's very focused on clerics. And in that adventure, the cleric of your party will probably take center stage. And then depending on how the party does, at the end, uh, all the clerics in the realm are affected. They, you know, something good or something bad happens to them depending on the outcome. I didn't quite lean into it that hard, but I used this plot of, uh, you know, the, the goddess of fate uh, toying with people in the world, except I wanted to sort of up the stakes a little bit. And the plot well, of this campaign... Can I stop you for a second? Did you do yeah. the the class transition mechanic? I didn't because I, I didn't... Like, the first, I want to say, like, four or five adventures from the Fate of Istis all dealt with classes that weren't in the party. So, like, oh, right. great, you know... Uh, we're we're doing the rogue mission. It's going to affect all the rogues, but the party and doesn't have a rogue. So where's it, the fun in that? I might be wrong, but it was this. What what uh, system did you run this in? I ran this in three point five. Oh, okay, because one thing I was thinking was like you know if this was like your first five e campaign, you wouldn't want to mess around with the mechanics like that. But man, I would. That's the most interesting thing about the campaign to me, I think, in in concept is like I would love to do something where like each mission I upgrade one of the character classes with like to like a cool prestige thing. I really like the idea of like something being defined by what you do over the course of the campaign. There is a little bit of that that comes in from time to time as I dive into the campaign module. But, you know, as so many of my campaigns, this is a bit of a Frankenstein's monster patched together with bits and pieces. But the overarching plot for this one is that the goddess of fate is playing a game and the heroes, the players, are like the pieces in this game. And the... The person, or rather the deity that she is playing against, is this, this ultimate god of evil, uh, Yuz, who was destroyed centuries ago, but Yuz is mounting an attack. Very, very like Sauron, a very sort of Sauron-type character, uh, who is threatening to come back and wreak havoc upon the world of, of I think it's pronounced Earth. 
uh, but Greyhawk. The setting Orth. is Greyhawk. Orth. Orth. I don't know. Orth. Earth. Well, it's A E R T H. So it could just be Earth. Oh, really? Earth. I thought I thought it was O E R T H. Orth. Well, Earth. wherever it is, welcome I always to, just welcome to Earth. Welcome to Earth. Welcome to yeah, Earth. Yeah, it's it's E R F F Earth. Um, you are M. Is it M apostrophe I L U R F Mill Earth? Um. So Yuz is threatening to come back, and in a bid to stop him, Istis has basically challenged him to a game. It's actually a lot like uh, Clash of the Titans as well, where it's sort of like, okay, pick the pieces on the board and those will be our focus. And so the two gods have chosen the adventurers at the heart of our story to be the, the game pieces, to prove their worth. And based on their actions, maybe the ultimate evil will come back or maybe not. Um, and another component of this that is sort of like unfurled as the campaign goes along is uh, the gods keep throwing these little wild cards into the mix in the form of ancient magical items, uh, many of which were thought lost for centuries, lost to the sand, sands of time that have suddenly started reappearing. Uh, to add some some zest to the proceedings. So, uh, and I guess I'll do just a really quick recap of the four players and their characters. Um, my wife, Caitlin, was playing a barbarian, a uh, barbarian princess named Hulkamania, uh, who had a sort of a sort of a Swedish accent. Uh, my friend Cater was playing a sardonic drow elf paladin named Maeve. Uh, his wife, Cecily, was playing a kender druid named Stash, uh, who has Maeve a was primarily familiar. Maeve was primarily based on a something, right? Not, not based, but very evocative of like Daria or Aubrey right. Plaza. Right, that's right, that's right, like, that's... Yeah, not not in, no, it wasn't intentionally like I'm just going to do Daria as a paladin, but that is Maeve's attitude very much. I was like, just trying to remember what you said last time. I was like, yeah, what is and it's funny because I was looking for like fantasy characters and stuff, and then I was I was way off. <laughs> um, Stash is the the Kender druid with the scrambled brain, uh, who Squirrel. sometimes. Yeah, sometimes switches minds with her squirrel familiar. And then uh, Steve, who has played in a bunch of the other campaigns I've talked about, uh, he was playing a dwarf ranger named Eric, who wants to become like a hero of legend. And we start, uh, this is another one similar to what I did with Eberron, is I grabbed a big map of the Greyhawk setting and... You know, you get to watch the, the characters, like, traipse their way around it. And we start in the far north reaches uh, in a, a region called the Hold of Stonefist. And there's this small settlement called Bastro, uh, which is just, like, nestled into this mountain range. 
at the mouth of a river called the Frozen River, sparsely populated, uh, but it's a port town where there are always these ships coming and going and, you know, sailors and smugglers and merchants and uh, a lot of sort of like Norse Viking type people who live up there. A lot of nomadic barbarian tribes and the odd ranger or druid. They're goblins that live in the evergreen forests uh, where there's always snow on the ground. And uh, so we start off uh, focused on Maeve. And Maeve has just finished her training at the Order of Istis. And she's been dispatched into, Sto uh, into Stonefist because they, the Order received a letter reporting a lot of unrest in that region. And so she went with her mentor. The party NPC is a cleric named Lars Rygar. Uh, and so she and Lars have headed north. And Lars just tells her in no uncertain terms, like, this mission is going to be your proving ground. Like, the final test before we officially declare you a paladin of Istis. I can I ask you you called Lars a party NPC. Is that uh like a DMPC or uh what how do you Yeah, the the DMPC basically. Neat. Okay. It, cool. He's Yeah, he's he's like going to be trash an NPC. Can exactly. Just the NPC who sticks with the party uh and who is sort of like a a surrogate for me uh inserted into the party and I I almost always use these DN DMPCs just to, like, fill in a hole in the party. They had no real, you know, they have a paladin, but they don't have a lot of healing. So I was like, I should probably throw a cleric in there just to just to give them a little more guidance. Uh, and also give another connection to the gods, because knowing that the gods are going to become important to the plot, and you want to have someone who's, like, really well-versed in religion uh, who can fill in some of the, the blanks for them. It's funny because and, traditionally I, I've used an entire, you know, sort of cast of NPCs for the for the purpose you're describing. You know, I have Odium and stuff, but who I have sort of considered a DMPC. But then I have like the whole of the Empok to provide that sort of handler role, that that quest giver role and that guidance. Right. All in well, different characters that are... fill different roles. Um, sorry, you were going to say something? There are other NPCs who are going to fill different roles, but because this is another one of the, one of those like jet setting kind of campaigns where they're traveling around a lot, I wanted to give the DM NPC or the DMPC the, that sticks with the party sort of has the most information. Yeah. You don't necessarily have the benefit of like the MPOC, uh, you know, roster to, just like have available at the base or whatever but to a, to a degree <laughs> though uh the order of istis does come into play so there are different uh clerics and paladins within the order of istis who will serve different roles like the head of the order of istis will come into play as well so the reason i bring this up is because like in our mini campaign that we've been running um you know i to fill the role that you've been describing, I mean, similar to the Order of Vistas, I've had the Church of Joaquin. And so you've had the NPCs Father Gillis and and Aisha to sort Father of Gillis. give you guidance and uh, whatnot and give you quests. But then um, the DMPC, the, the like party NPC, as you said, that I've included in the party that is like a full-on 
basically built as a PC is Trash Can Anne. And she's just there because I wanted to play Trash Can Anne from level 1 to 20. <laughs> she's like, hey guys, I'm coming along for this ride. Not surprising. <clears throat> um, Lars Rygar, uh, I based him heavily off of a character from Game of Thrones. Can you guess who I based him off of? Uh, Just like from the vague description I've given, Sir Lars Rygar, he's like a mentor type char character. He's a cleric. He's got gray hair and a beard. Uh, I'm not... Drawn, I'm drawing blanks for clerics in Game of Thrones, except for like the High Sparrow and. Uh, well, he's not really a yeah. cleric in Game of Thrones, but this is the I was trying to evoke Davos Seaworth. Oh, okay, much okay, so. there we go. Yeah, I also wasn't sure um, how much hair to be imagining. I was imagining one of them long-haired dudes. Ah, uh, no, no, this is it's Davos Seaworth that I was trying to evoke with this character. Uh, without really spelling it out for the players, just a lot of like gruff glances, but he's kind of a softy at heart. And so he and Maeve arrive uh, on horseback on the edge of Bastro. I just want to say, I the reason I want to play Trash Can Anne is because, uh, you know, I created that character, but then people keep, my friends, they keep doing campaigns, they keep doing big epic campaigns that I can't figure out why Trash Can Anne would be involved in. They're like, you're going to be <laughs> traveling all over the world, saying the world. It's like, why trash can in there? Why she just, she's just a junk merchant. <laughs> anyway, sorry, continue. So are, <laughs> that's no problem at all. We got to talk more about trash can in on future episodes. Sounds like you've got, a, there's a lot of trash can in lore that I don't know about. I mean, I was happy to, in the most recent episode of our mini campaign, just do a full-on lore dump because uh, Jess rolled the right insight check and then did a little right. telepathic aside. Uh, well, I guess I'll read you my backstory. <laughs> <laughs> so Maeve and Lars arrive on the edge of Bastro uh, where they hear like there's great unrest and they can immediately see that something is kind of amiss because there are just giant storm clouds raging over the village, uh, and it's raining torrential rain and buffeting wind. Um, it seems like the you know the weather itself is exhibiting signs of unrest. So they ride into town, and uh, the letter that they got says to meet their contact at the local tavern at sundown. And uh, I didn't go for one of my typical tavern names, but uh, this one, this is a cheeky one. The tavern in Bastro is called The Plot and Hook. Yeah. Hey, oh. Uh, I'm going through my notes here and I noticed that I have the, the sort of general features. I made a point to write a lot of them down. There's the strong smell of salt in the chilling air. Uh, as they ride into town, they see a Viking a Viking-like barbarian herding walruses on the beach. Uh, their you know, waves are crashing against the rocks along the shore, and cold spray stings their face, and the skies are darkening. They can't see the sun beyond the storm clouds. So they tether their horses outside the plot and hook, and they go inside, and who's tending bar but Hulkamania herself? Uh, nice. She's 
taken leave from her barbarian tribe. And uh, one of the sort of ongoing, uh, like, personal plot lines of Hulka's was that, like, she really likes to party and she's sort of, she she's constantly struggling with the balance between being this like giant barbarian woman but also being you know kind of girly and like attracted to nice dresses and things and she just doesn't really want to be a princess at all she's she's uh at odds with her father and so she's struck out on her own and she's tending bar at the plot and hook and and she uh, has a rival named named randy the savage right (laughs) <laughs> yeah he doesn't he doesn't come into play in, in this campaign though oh that's too bad i'm in my back pocket for for the sequel um yeah. but we could hey don't let that dissuade you from doing a randy savage impression i i just so, I, oh man i i thought that this rivalry was going to be a subplot <laughs> unfortunately not uh, but there are plenty. There are some oh, lots of plenty. Look Don't who you worry. got the magic item first! Oh yeah, <laughs> runs off. <laughs> <laughs> or no, it's a magic belt, and he's like, "Guess I'll be putting this." Oh, and then the Hulkamania shows up. <laughs> <laughs> look who took the top prize! Um, there you go. This is the thing: is I I have barely watched any wrestling, so it feels weird to do the impression. <laughs> But I've only watched so little iconic. YouTube like, videos. Yeah, thing. I've only watched little YouTube videos of him being insane. <laughs> they head into the plot and hook. They're greeted by Hulkamania. Um, and the only other people there besides Maeve, Lars, and Hulka are a group of dwarf fishermen who are seated at two tables and they're playing some kind of gambling game with another dwarf. And that other dwarf is Eric. Uh, he had been recently hired to guard a caravan uh, leading to Bastro. And they got there and the caravan was like, thanks, we don't need your services anymore. So he's just been left to his own devices in town for a few days. And he's waiting for another caravan to show up so that he can leave with it. And uh, I role played some like mini mini games, uh, doing some gambling. And uh, as a nice little detail, uh, Maeve was like, gambling, huh? Well, I am a paladin of the goddess of fate, so I consider gambling a form of worship. And he and she, rather, Maeve and Lars, decide to join in the gambling game, and that's how. And Hulka loves a party, so she takes part too. And so this game is where the bulk of the party started to form and, and bond. And then I did a cutaway, and just outside of town... Stash awakens with a start and she's totally hung over. She's got like a pounding migraine. She can't remember how she got where she is. She's lying in a patch of tall dead grass on a low hill. She's face down in the snow. She stumbles to her feet, totally disoriented. And uh, her vision sort of keeps spits out an acorn. (laughs) Well, pretty close uh, because she's like pats down her belongings and she looks in her pouch of gold to see if she was robbed and there's no gold in it. There are all these nuts. And the, the detail <laughs> that I came up with was that when she had switched, uh, switched minds with her squirrel familiar, uh, her familiar hid all her gold in a hole in the tree and replaced it with nuts in the pouch. Um, 
So she gets up and she finds that all her gold is gone. And I like the idea that having come, I like the idea that having come to the frigid north, it's just like triggered her sort of like winter survival instincts. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so like she gets up. <laughs> she just... woke up and she was just very fat. <laughs> <laughs> her big cheeks, her cheeks just stuffed with nuts. Um, so she's like trying to get her bearings when she smells like this delicious smell on the air of roasting chestnuts. And she's instantly attracted to this. This would become a running chestnuts roasting on an open that... fire. No, not quite. Uh, roasting on a cart uh, being pushed by a gnome in a thick fur coat. This steaming cart of roasting chestnuts headed for the settlement in the distance. Um, and uh, so, and it turns out we don't we don't learn this yet, but it turns out that Stash is the one that wrote to the order to alert them that there's like all this unrest going on because she has friends within the order, but she has completely lost her memory of all this. So attracted Plot by the smell convenient of these, amnesia, I love it. Yeah, uh, attracted by the smell of these chestnuts. She just like follows the roaster dazed uh, into town as he heads into the pub carrying two large baskets full of paper bags of nuts to sell to the patrons of the pub. And as soon as uh, the roaster goes in, you know, Stash staggers in after him and uh, and Lars spots Stash and goes like, oh, this must be our contact and flags over Stash and between all of them, now that they've all sort of introduced each other, they start piecing together the puzzle. And Lars like gets out the, the letter. And uh, so here's sort of like the, the setup for, for the mission they're about to go on. Uh, there's a wizard that used to live on top of the mountain that looms over Bastro. He was this great adventurer and innovator of magical experimentation. Because his research was so valuable and dangerous, he fortified his tower with a variety of magical spell traps to keep out intruders. Uh, centuries ago, he fled the tower for reasons that no one knows, but rumors abound that he left behind this small horde of unique magic items, and the most powerful of that of those was called the Stormhorn. And the wizard was this master of elemental magic, so many of his defenses are elemental in nature. When sounded, the Stormhorn opens a portal to the elemental plane of air and summons an air elemental. So now, after decades, maybe even centuries, it would appear that someone has found the Stormhorn and sounded it, and that's why a storm has been raging over the region for weeks. Um, so that's, that's sort of like the mission that is laid out. They have to scale the mountain, go up to the abandoned wizard's tower to see if the Stormhorn has, you know, re-emerged. Um, and I also make a joke here uh, where Lars says, uh, these kinds of, he makes a joke, he's like, these kinds of quests are really common. Didn't you hear last month, Dequilic and his elf friends had to collect seven parts of a giant key to lock the main gates to the Underdark or risk the Azure Sea turning to acid. And he's like, it was inevitable that something like this would drop into our laps. 
especially the, I played a lot with the idea of the goddess of fate, like toying with them where it's like, oh yeah, fate dictates that anybody in a D&D game is going to get a mission kind of like this. Um, the storm out front is getting stronger and stronger as the sun is set. And then suddenly the doors burst open and this blasting gust of wind pummels the players, uh, sending chairs and tables flying. And in through the door come two small air elementals. There's a fight against these air, ele air elementals. Um, Damn. And so air elementals are uh, pretty tough in uh, fifth edition. Yeah, well, these were these were like very minor ones to give them a taste, but they're going to go up against a larger one uh, in a little bit. Um, and so they're like, you know, I threw these air elementals in to give some urgency. Um, and I believe that the players didn't even kill them. I just had the air elementals retreat after a certain number of rounds. And after they leave, the players are like, well, obviously we need to attend to this problem. And so they decide they're going to stay the night at the plot and hook. And then next morning, they'll set off uh, up the mountain to the tower. And for the tower, uh, I used uh, a tower and map from our friends over at Dungeon Magazine. Uh, I borrowed uh, an elemental wizard tower from an adventure called Storm Dancers from Dungeon Magazine number 86. And uh, it's got some some great, uh, great details here. I love the maps that they have have put where there's like a narrow footpath that leads up to a stone circle, uh, like a stone summoning circle. And then there's a bridge made of glass across a chasm that leads to a wizard tower. And then at the base of the, the wizard tower is like ha on a plateau halfway up a mountain. And uh, at the base of the wizard's tower on the side of the mountain, there's a, a sort of mini dungeon of tunnels leading to a magic elevator that goes all the way up to the top of the mountain. And on the top of the mountain uh, is, uh, uh, oh, what's it? Like, there's just like a, a plateau where there are more sort of uh, magical accessories, I guess you could say, uh, used for summoning and rituals. And so I ran this little dungeon crawl with them. They have to, uh, and there, there are all these air elementals flying around. So they have an encounter with the air elementals at the stone circle. Then they have to cross the chasm between the, the like the chasm uh, from one side to the other to get to the wizard tower on a 250 foot long glass bridge without railings. So, and that's almost invisible as well. So they've got to cross it while maintaining their balance and also not being able to see. Uh, so lots of penalties. It was a, it was balance checks. I remember that skill balance. Um, and then if they fail, they have to make reflex saves or be blown off the bridge and potentially die. Uh, they decided to sort of do a human chain, you know, grabbing each other's hands and working their way across in a big line. Uh, they go, there's the wizard's tower, which is sort of ruined on the inside. Uh, but inside, they, it's been taken over by ice methods. 
So they, they went in to try and explore, and they're beset by ice methods, and they have a combat there. Then they head through these caves, uh, set into the mountainside, and uh, there are... There, there, I had a riddle there. Uh, what is large enough to fill the sky, yet small enough to pass through the smallest hole, Tom? Uh, air? That's right! So they... They solve nice. the uh, the riddle, and they can explore. And inside these caves, like most of the the rooms are pretty basic. There's like a wine cellar. There's a storeroom, but they also find a laboratory. Uh, it's got a few traps, uh, like a spiked grill that can that falls from the ceiling, and then some interesting treasures thrown in there. Uh, there's a summoning room that the wizard used to used to use to summon his elementals uh laboratories of course and then the elevator uh there's a, cir a circular room and they can't see the ceiling it's like lost in darkness uh just this long uh shaft reaching up into the mountain and then there's a wooden basket large enough to carry five or six humans suspended by a series of ropes and an iron up-down lever, level, ah, lever is set into the wall. So they can use that as an elevator to get up to the top. And there's, you know, I played up. I, I didn't intend for them to ever fall, but I wanted to play up the idea that this thing's really rickety and, and put them on edge. And they finally arrive at the mountaintop. And uh, there's just a roiling storm completely surrounding them. Uh, even though the mountaintop itself is clear. And they can see, to the northeast, this large horn levitating just above the mountaintop, the storm horn. And below the horn rests this rolled-up uh, leather hose connected to a triangular bellows. And then no, there's a no, dead no, body this, up there. It's hanging there, but under it is a ladder and who's put out the ladder, but it's Randy the Savage. Oh, I'm going to get oh, it before you do. Climbing to the top. <laughs> I beat you to the top of the mountain. Um, but no, there's a dead body there. And yeah. they investigate the body and discover that it is a dead cleric of Yuz. A dark cleric of Yuz. Uh, so this is their first clue that... Yuz, this e this great evil, uh, is somehow involved, and they sort of put it together. They're like, I guess this he's must got be a the holy symbol of Yuz or something. Exactly, yeah. And they're like, this must be the guy who discovered the Stormhorn and tried to take it. And they try to take the Stormhorn, but as they do so, a large air, air elemental comes out, and a fight ensues. And uh, do you know what level so they were? A, they were level one at this point. But and there are Aerial. five of them. Well, I guess that scales because air elementals in. Uh... Well, no, I don't think it does because air elementals in five, fifth edition are challenge rating five. That's tough stuff, man. Is tough stuff. They didn't kill it. The way they defeated it, they went through several rounds of combat and they were really getting their asses handed to them. But what they ended up doing is Hulka grabbed the horn and blew it. And the portal opened and sucked the air elemental hey, back into it. There you go. 
So they've grabbed the Storm Hornets in their possession. One of those the, Luke Skywalker Rancor insta-kills, you know? Yeah, very very much. Well, now, you know, they knew the story of the Stormhorn that could summon elementals. They're like, well, maybe it can it, maybe it can control them, too. So Hulika pockets the Stormhorn, and they start heading back to Bastro as the sun is starting to set. And the closer they get to town the more the storm has started to dissipate. And they ride into town just as the first stars are coming out in the sky. And they notice that mixed in among the stars is a glowing green star, which will come into play later, of course. But it's, you know, it's a harbinger of things to come. Uh, but more importantly is as they ride into town, we end this adventure on a cliffhanger because uh, they ride in and they notice that uh, a, like an armada of raiding ships, of barbarian raiding ships, is suddenly filling the harbor, and raiding parties and boats are being dispatched from the ships You're and never heading. You're going to guess who's at their head. <laughs> well, it, it, there is actually a guy at their head. Uh, this is straight out of the lore for Greyhawk. But uh, it's the Barbarian King, his most grim and terrible might, Relt Seavord, the Master of Stonehold. And okay. so, so I ended on a cliffhanger with these raiding parties coming into shore. Um, this scene, I wanted to evoke uh, a scene from early on in the first Pirates of the Caribbean, where the Black Pearl sails into port and all the pirates start, you know, fucking things up in, in the town looking for their lost medallion. I wanted to evoke that same kind of energy. And so uh, things close there with the raiding parties coming ashore. Yeah, good stuff. I like it. And we're off. We're off. This is a solid dungeon, too. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good one. Uh, Issue 86 of Dungeon Magazine, Storm Dancers. This reminds me that I should uh, check what the module I am doing uh for my thing i'm pretty sure what i'm doing is based off of uh outlaws of the iron route um yeah it's uh right yeah perfect it is a uh you know, it's another one from the first season with the uh, Cult of the Dragon plot line. But what's more important is uh, I'm doing my version of it, which is uh, Operation Brass Petals, the finale of the act, the second act of Al's Aces, Temporary Antennae. And so one thing um, I had briefly mentioned back in the episode um operation uh operation tobacco beetle when they were hunting down the book thief uh they ran into a nightside eclipse um minion who was like kind of a pushover and basically surrendered halfway through the fight and this follows up on that because that person was taken captive and basically like taken to the dungeons of Mephisto to be interrogated for information. And the sort of inciting incident, the, the initial thing 
that the players here that starts off that sort of kicks off this operation is that that guy has cracked. He's ready to talk. And so the players are going to go meet up with that guy and interrogate him themselves, get the information they need on the nightside eclipse. But then suddenly a riot breaks out across Mephistar. The entire Nargis Glacier, the capital of Kenya, Mephisto's realm, is suddenly attacked by rebel devils just like going crazy all over the place. Um, Whoa, there's nightside. There's a war in hell. Yeah, there's nightside eclipse attacking sort of from outside around the glacier. They've got all these operatives and mercenaries and rebels that they've incited. Um, but then across Mephistar, it's just chaos because there's devils just like devils running around, devils killing each other. Um, the players are like trying to look, trying to figure things out through all this chaos. Um, and basically, I can't remember if it was Therian or Mephisto, but somebody contacted them and said, well, you need to go secure that prisoner. And so sure enough, they go to find that prisoner and the prisoner is being broken out by, uh, the nightside eclipse because he's about to talk. And, uh, so there's this large group of nightside eclipse, like 12 thugs, and then also, um, a minotaur. Uh, and they've started this big fire and they have to have this big fight in the streets of Mephistar where this riot is happening. Um, but then they find out basically that uh, Carmen has uh, busted another prisoner out of Mephistar in the riot, which is uh, a necromancer that is key to the Nightside Eclipse plans. And oh, so... Man. And what's funny is necromancers, bad news. Well, and uh, Carmen and the necromancer are headed for a portal out of the plane at the foot of the glacier that's been set up by these uh, nightside eclipse forces. But what's funny is that this is a bit of deja vu for my brother and his girlfriend who are playing as uh, Nestle and uh, Ara Kendor because this is the same way that things ended in hell the previous campaign where Carmen and a necromancer escaped through a portal and they had to chase them through the portal. Now they're basically <laughs> hearing that the same thing's happening, but um, they don't know what's going on with this necromancer, but some sort of VIP that Carmen's busted out. And uh, so the players basically have to battle their way down Nargis Glacier. I've got a huge, almost like full page, like, um, side scroller map of this operation this is like what sort of jumped out at me about you're having a big like chunky dungeon in your uh in your side of it was like i think also this uh module is like pretty packed with uh stuff happening um so initially they have to travel so so they're going down the glacier but the glacier is just like tons of like jagged chasms and like sheer drops and like you know it's you're not supposed to be easy it's not supposed to be easy to get down from the citadel of of mephisto so of course like it's difficult just to traverse the glacier itself and so initially they find like a cavern system that allows them to sort of cut down to a uh, a pathway that will let them get to sort of the nightside eclipse rebel camp um, but in that, uh, cavern, they run into four imps and six giant goats. 
We remember the giant goats <laughs> that are lurking in the glaciers of Kenya. And then these uh, imps have got these riled up giant goats. And then also one of the imps uh, has a jar of spiders that he throws at the players. <laughs> so the players are dealing with goats, spiders, and imps. This one, like, I feel like this is just... A jar of spiders, though. That's great. I feel like... Just the regular mo- spiders? Like, yeah. I, I guess, you know, venomous spiders, but... They might be poison. I should actually um, check this module, but... But like, not, like, monstrous spiders or anything no, like that. No, they're just... not monstrous spiders, but... Uh, <laughs> That's great. It is funny, like, this module is full of just, like, what I took as interesting opportunities for, uh, like, enemy units, basically. Like, having, you know, a, a, an imp throw a jar of spiders. Um, I feel like, yeah, there is... In this one, it is a flying kobold uh, who throws a jar of spiders. Someone throws a jar of spiders. Oh, here it is. Uh, One of the kobolds carries a jar of poisonous spiders, which can be thrown up to 20 feet, shattering on impact. Make a ranged attack against a creature or object, treating the jar as an improvised weapon. On a hit, the jar deals one piercing damage as it shatters, and 1d6 angry spiders land on the target. Each spider (laughs) attacks once before skittering away. I love that. Yeah, um... And we're gonna so so we're gonna see some more uh fun little um like I again since the season that this module comes from of Adventures League focused around Horde of the Dragon Queen and like the Dragon Cult, I think that the enemies are generally um kobolds. Um but then you have another situation basically right after that where they come out of the caverns and they're going down to where they see like uh, a little rebel encampment set up on the glacier. But then as they're getting there, there's a, an icy ridge above them where there are uh, 12 imps that cause an avalanche over them, which is also just the thing that they have uh, with uh, kobolds in the existing thing. Then uh, they get down to the camp and it's full of rebel devils. Uh, so there's 12 imps and then they're led by a bearded devil. And they also find that this is where sort of like the um, rebel water supply is uh, collected. Like they have canteens of water that hasn't been contaminated with insomnium. Um, then they're further going down the uh, glacier down one of the sort of like icy footpaths that leads down the glacier and they run into two sort of imps that have like been blessed or uh have dedicated themselves to the powers of the nightside eclipse and so these are two imps that have like necrotic energy attacks that can do these powerful necrotic attacks necro imps necro imps then there's another cavern which is full of imps that have set up a little like um, basically they've they've got a prison and they've captured all these existing uh, prisoners of Kanya, like like residents of hell, basically. And they've got them all in a cage. But before the cage, like on the way into the cavern, there is a pit trap and the pit trap is also also designed. It's like um, you have the pit trap. So so I'll describe it. Uh, the pit is 12 feet deep and hidden under trampled scrub brush, though in this case it was like, uh, you know, thin ice. 
Uh, twine is strung between the pit's wicker surface and a wasp's nest above. A creature falling into the pit pulls the nest down with it, enraging the wasps. So it's a pit trap that does bludgeoning damage and poison damage from the wasps at, at the end of every turn that the creature remains inside the pit. So it's a tricky this little is great. You know, devil wasp imp trap. With D&D, it is always so tempting. How could it not be? To go for, like, monsters, typical fantasy creatures. I love that so many of these encounters are like, goats, a jar of spiders, a nest of wasps. <laughs> I mean, I also, part of it is just, like, the idea, like, like this riot in Mephisto, like, it's not... <laughs> There's not going to be a there's not going to be a revolution in Mephistar. Like this riot is going to be put down. This revolution is going to be put down. It's basically a suicide mission that the Nightside Eclipse has convinced these rebel devils to mount, um, so that they can extract the assets that they need. You know, enacting their plan uh, that they've had here in in Kenya, but then. Because of that, there's no like actual like there's no ice devils. There's no actual powerful, smart, cunning devils that are like in the upper echelons of Kenya that would really involve themselves with this. Like the worst you have is like some corrupt bearded devils and stuff who are sort of like maybe like like sergeants or generals in the military, like like military figures, but not even like the high commanders or anything. And so it naturally this revolution has to be composed of just like really jumped up imps who have like figured out ways that they think that they can turn the tables. Um, part of it is like largely provided by the Nightside Eclipse is like, oh, you'll be able to beat them if you have necro powers, if you have a if you turn a bunch of. Uh, if you have a trap that gets the uh, wasps to fall on, if you throw a spider jar at them, that'll do it. Um, so they're fighting through these imps, and then uh, they get past the cage full of the prisoners, and what is beyond the prisoners at the mouth, like the exit to that cavern, but one imp with a flamethrower. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they fight. That's great. So, so they're fighting their way out of the cavern. They have to fight an imp with the flamethrower. Then they come down to sort of like a, a base camp where there's more of the actual like nightside eclipse agitators. Um, so it's a whole bunch of uh, nightside eclipse thugs led by a nightside eclipse knight who is uh, has the reckless ability, which you're familiar with from playing a barbarian where they... Um, can grant themselves advantage by granting enemies advantage if they do a reckless attack. Um, and then also the knight had uh, a flying sword accompanying him. So when they fought the knight, who was sort of like the boss of the Nightside Eclipse camp, um, they had to really do a fight with two swordsmen at once in a way. Then cool. they're further, they get past that camp, they're getting towards the bottom, and then from a sort of like uh uh what it's like uh i'm screwing up i'm i'm missing the word it's like a point it's like a pier hanging off the edge of a of a mountain a point that hangs off uh, a mountain a precipice a precipice of some kind from some sort of like craggy uh step above them 
rappels down an elven gunslinger from Thress who has been, uh, you know, basically hired by these rebels. So I've mentioned before, uh, Nestle's home realm is a place that is like run by elves, but, um, you know, empowered by infernal magic due to their alliance with Mephisto from the first campaign. And so it's not, it's kind of, it's, it's a bit of a dystopia. It's like the elves are on top, but things are very like corrupt and everything is fueled with hellfire. And like people who are not in the aristocracy are very oppressed. And so it's easy to find people who have fallen on the wrong side of Mephisto's rule from Thress that can be sort of militarized against Mephisto in this act of rebellion. So the Nightside Eclipse um, has hired this elven gunslinger from Thress who repels down from uh, above them with a rope of climbing, which is a magic item that they get to take from him after they beat him. And then he's got two revolvers and they have to fight this uh, elven gunslinger. Um, then... Uh, further down, they fight another pair of uh, Nightside Eclipse leaders, uh, one of whom is another knight, but then an- the other one is actually a dragonborn sorceress. So they're fighting like a, a melee fighter sort of boss, but then also a spellcaster at the same time. Um, and then after fighting through them, uh, they get into like, the main sort of Nightside Eclipse mercenary ca- mercenary camp that they have um, set up at the base of the glacier, which is just like just beyond that is where the portal, uh, the extra planar portal they've erected is set up. And so they get to the bottom of the glacier and there's this huge camp full of orc mercenaries led by two orogs that are riding wargs. So they're in a big like battle wow. with a whole encampment of orcs. And then they, after fighting through all of them, just like their last, you know, the just like when Empox Finest fought their way through the Nightside Eclipse in Hell, they have to just follow Carmen and the Necromancer right through the planar portal and just see where it goes. Because there's no way they're letting Carmen out of their sights after all this. Man, this must have been a long session. There's a lot of combat in this. Yeah, um, I think it definitely helps that a lot of it was with imps who are like fairly fairly weak as far as... Um, yeah, they only have 15 HP. Uh, another thing... And a flamethrower. Yeah, there's that. Um... One thing I will say is it it may have hmm I'm I'm not sure now. Let me let me check something about something on the cleric spell list. Uh a spell that I think may be unique to um storm clerics or 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 no, it's not unique to storm clerics, but storm clerics have a very good Thing of it so so arakendor uh had this ability i i'm not sure if he had it okay so it's an evocation spell it's fifth level i'm not sure what level they were so i'm just not sure if he had access to it oh and it's a paladin spell but the trick is that storm clerics get access to it 
So it's you strike the ground, creating a burst of divine energy that ripples outward from you. Each creature you choose within 30 feet of you must succeed on a constitution saving throw. Also that each creature you choose is really key because it means you can not opt to not hurt friendlies. Must succeed on a constitution saving throw or take 5d6 thunder damage as well as 5d6 radiant or necrotic damage, you, your choice, and be knocked prone. A creature that succeeds on its saving throw takes half as much damage and isn't knocked prone. That's an amazing, uh, just like, area of effect spell that you send out from yourself, that wave. The thing is, Storm Clerics also get the Channel Divinity ability to choose to make the spell do maximum thunder damage. So instead of doing 5d6 thunder damage, he can do a guaranteed 30 thunder damage, which, as I just said, the imps only had 15 HP. So I'm thinking that maybe at this point he had just gotten access to Destructive Wave and was just absolutely clearing out imps every <laughs> chance he got. Um, whether or not this was the time when he got it, this became just like a staple move for Arakendor is like he was a very competent cleric as far as healing went, but then also he could often like act as the tank because he had heavy armor. He was like a Goliath with a big, uh, like with a shield and a big war hammer. He would just like wade out into a swarm of like, say those like Nightside Eclipse thugs. He would wade out into them and just like blast them back like some sort of superhero and uh yeah it was like one of his major moves is like anytime they fought a group of ener enemies he was sort of like the area of effect uh control unit um and yeah that was operation brass pedals taking us cool. into act three out of kenya and i'll tell you where it led into well, actually, I think it's... No, no, not the same place as last time. They did go to the Far Realms last time, but it wasn't through the Portal from Hell. The Portal from Hell took them back to Drill. But this time, the Portal takes them straight into the Far Realms. Whoa! We're gonna see what the hell happens up in there. It's exciting. I like this one. I As I said, I really like that so many of the encounters were just with more mundane kinds of creatures. Jar of Spiders is freaky, man. I don't want anybody to throw a Jar of Spiders at me. A Nightside Eclipse-sponsored uprising of devils and mercenaries and rebels across the Nargis Glacier. Awesome. It was fun, too, because it had, like, a fair degree of, like, intensity and urgency to it. The idea that, like, you know, rather than just getting their mission, they have a mission and then they go to do it and a riot breaks out and they're like, what the fuck? And then they're like, uh, new plan. You got to fight all these guys and then you got to fight your way down the <laughs> glacier and then you got to go through a portal and you're out of here. Sounds intense. It must have been like a real breakneck kind of a session. Got a rope of climbing out of it, though. So tavern time. Yeah. Assuming we I just had gotta, no further comments. I just got a quick couple of things that I brought to the tavern for fun. Okay. Should I, should I start us off? Yeah, I think I, I, you know, I said, you you had said when I was doing all this 
uh, Thousand Years Under the Sun stuff, you had said like, oh, uh, it's going to be a tavern pick. And I'm like, eh, no, I've got these other tavern picks. But then I basically spent like 20 minutes at the beginning of this yeah. episode talking about <laughs> Thousand Years Under the Sun. You basically did it as a tavern so, pick. So I feel like I basically, yeah, if I do a tavern pick this time, it's going to be small. Uh, but I do have a small one that uh, is kind of irrelevant. But I'll let you do your thing first. Yeah, mine is also quite small. Um, when I messaged you to let you know what I was going to be bringing to the tavern, I said it was two of the most game-breaking items from D&D. What do you think they are? Uh, is one of them bl- Black Razor? No. Okay. Um, More cliche than that. Yeah, I don't know. I Like... When you say game breaking, is that kind of like is that like a sensationalist head headline? Is that is this like items that are actually just really good or is it like something notorious and and bad like notorious? Not necessarily bad, I guess, but notorious for completely disrupting any game of D&D that they are thrown into. Uh, So the deck of many things. That's one of them. Uh, Wand of Wonders, and that's the other one. Holy shit! Two and t- two and two, man, love it. Because you know, I'm sure there's some article out there that's like the bag of holding totally breaks inventory and encumbrance, and it's like, man, fuck you. Nah, these are these are the big ones. These are the ones where. They can just completely disrupt uh, any given game. And it's funny, you know, because I remember, like, I loved these when I was first starting out in D&D. The deck of many things, I thought it was just the coolest idea for a magic item. Um, but now that I am Too a DM, many things! Yeah, now that I am a DM of many years, I can pretty clearly see how it's just like, once there's a deck of many things... Your game is no longer about the deck of many things. It, it, or rather, your game is only about the deck of many things. It's not about it's the not rest about of the campaign. campaign. Although you, um, you did say that as you became a DM of many years, and now that sounds like a comparative magic item, like the deck of many things and the DM of and many the DM years. of many years. The only, the only uh, thing that can stop a deck of many things is the DM of many years. Um. So in the off chance, I don't know how anybody would be listening to our podcast and never having heard of things like the Rod of Wonder of the Deck of Many Things, but in the off chance that you haven't heard of these, the Deck of Many Things is a magical deck of 22 cards. You can create your own sort of substitute using 22 cards from a deck of cards. Uh, Consult your DM's guide for a list of the cards that uh, you need to use, and then Every time you use the deck of many things, you draw a card and something wacky happens. And the Rod of Wonder is a similar sort of thing. It is a strange and unpredictable wand that randomly generates any number of weird effects uh, that you activate it as a standard action. And then there's a a percentile table from 1 to 100 that offers up all sorts of weird effects. And uh, these are notorious for disrupting many a game of D&D. Uh, I kind of question why they persist as, uh, as magic items now, simply because of their disruptive nature. But I guess, I guess they're classics in a way. They're, they're sort of fun. Um, 
So uh, I let's start with the Rod of Wonder. I figured we could just throw a, you know, roll a few dice and see what, what comes up. How are we going to disrupt our campaign? You want to roll a D100, Tom? Sure. And I mean, I don't know. I, the thing is, you talk about how these things have such a reputation, and I think that's a part of why they're still in the game. Not because, yeah. not because that is like a pass to get into the game, but because like you can now include... Like, like you can have players going through the like the vaults of the Lich King or whatever, and then they find one like small deposit box and they open it. And it's just a deck of cards with like a very ominous like package and someone like identifies it immediately. And it's like, holy shit, holy shit, this should never be used. And like it becomes like this weapon of mass destruction. That's like you beat the villain but he was keeping the most dangerous thing of all. And like immediately it becomes this like war for the deck of many things. Uh, I got a 52. It's like how it's like my idea of having the Tarrasque in your campaign, not as a thing, you, you know, not as a campaign element, but just as a mythological thing that exists in the world. Oh, there's dog barking. Yeah, either of these would make for good, like, MacGuffins or, you know, things that people are pursuing. Uh, but if you, once you hand one of these to a character, uh, all bets are off. I do find that the, the Rod of Wonder is, while it's still unpredictable, it is less problematic than uh, the Deck of Many Things. Because the Deck of Many Things, uh, I have, uh, you can find... Uh, wizards.com slash dnd slash dmt slash dmt.htm is the deck of many things generator online. So I'm going to draw from it in a second. The deck of many things, like it'll summon a castle or a dancing banana, um, <laughs> like really wild stuff. The Rod of Wonder, though, it does things like uh, with a 52, the target is affected by the enlarged person spell if within 60 feet of the rod. So you can make something big. I'm going to roll. That's not too bad. Uh, 38 uh, is a lightning bolt. A 66 point of damage lightning bolt. Hell yeah. Pow. Yeah. It's just wand like a random wand. of large wand of lightning bolt. Exactly. A five. Uh, you slow a target for 10 rounds. Wand of slow. Exactly. It's just like a, it's like a, a sampler platter of different wands. Uh, and then the 97 is one of the big ones. The wielder or the target, 50-50 chance, turns permanently blue, green, or purple with no save. <laughs> That's one of the sillier ones. Yeah. Uh, and then I'm going to do one more roll. I got a 65. Any non-living object of up to 1,000 pounds of mass and up to 30 cubic feet turns ethereal. Huh. Yeah, I mean, Ooh, just like something blinks out of the material plane. Gone. Yeah. I mean, none of these seem terribly game breaking, especially because no. you never know what you're going to get. No, it's kind of funny that the Rod of Wonder actually has that reputation, given that it is just sort of like it's it's a wand, a wand with a shuffle button on it. But uh, here, let's do something weird with the the deck of many things. The 
sorcerer draws from their deck of many things and gets the Ace of Diamonds, the Vizier. This card empowers the character drawing it with the one-time ability to call upon a source of wisdom to solve any single problem or answer fully any question upon her request. The query or request must be made within one year. So, <laughs> it's just like, free pass. You, you just, you draw this card and, you know what? Just, I, that riddle, I call upon the wisdom of the deck of many things to solve it. I need a rhyme for the word orange. And then suddenly, over the course of the next year, a word comes into common parlance called borange. And it refers to someone about... who draws from the deck of many things. I can, I, I, <laughs> I can rhyme with orange. I know, I know, I know. I know, I know, but I'm just saying. This is, this is the, one of them classics. Next, I drew the Void, the King of Clubs. This black card instantly spells disaster. The character's body continues to function as though comatose, but her psyche is trapped in a prison somewhere in an object on a far planar planet. It basically sends the, the person's soul into the Phantom Zone. Draw no more cards. A wish or miracle does not bring the character back. What the hell? Like the, yeah, like, that's it. You draw this card, that's it for your character. You get sent to an alternate dimension. Huh. Uh, here's one more. Uh, the Ace of Clubs is the Talons. When this card is drawn, every magic item owned or possessed by the player, or by the character, is instantly and irrevocably gone. Yoink. Brutal. Brutal punishment. Just all that stuff you worked for, uh, it's gone. Keep that lockbox, that deposit box sealed, man. And to do a couple more, uh, I drew the Queen of Spades, which is the Uriel. The Uriel, uh, the Medusa-like visage of this card, brings a curse that only the Fates card or a deity can remove. A minus one penalty on all saving throws that is permanent. I guess that's permanent disadvantage on all saving throws in 5e. Oh, boy. Uh, and then bad. this last one. Uh, there are, of course, many more of these. But uh, the Flames, which is the Queen of Clubs. Hot anger, jealousy, and envy are but a few of the possible motivational forces for the enmity. The enmity of the outsider can't be ended until one of the parties has been slain. Determine the outsider randomly and assume that it attacks the character uh, or plagues her life in some way within... 1d20 days, so just like suddenly a nemesis, an outsider nemesis, turns up and will doggedly pursue and attack the character who drew this. Damn. Yeah, it's brutal. This is I can brutal think of stuff. some outsiders that would just kill you. Uh, Alright, I'm gonna on. do one more and I got a good one. The Fool. The Joker. The payment of XP and the redraw are mandatory. So you you pay XP and then redraw, and this card is instantly redrawn. That is wild. Yeah, you if lose you lose uh, XP, if you if you got a a Marut after you as that outsider for that last one, you'd just be fucked. 
I can't see. And here's, of course, the danger of the deck of many things is I can't stop drawing from it. I just want to see what happens next. I drew uh, the two you never of should open that lich's lockbox, my friend. I drew the two of clubs, which is the idiot. This card causes 1d4 plus one points of int drain immediately. Well, you're dead. Yeah, instantly stupid. Terrible. Or dead. <laughs> or dead. Yeah, it could be dead. Completely you're a drooling vegetable. My God. All right, McGill, we're moving on. I just got a quick one. It's level three magic words. I'm going to give you some previous ones that are going to help you solve these ones. Okay? So here are your clues. These are some previous ones that will help you know what the words I give you are going to be in level three. But, but do get your list of level three spells from the core of the player's handbook up. Oh boy, okay. Uh, these are 5e spells, yeah. Yeah, so if you go to donjon.bin.sh uh, and then go on the spell sheet under D&D 5e and then hit level third and source PHB, you should have a, a list that breaks it down for you. All right, all right. I think I, think I got us here. But, but third first, level spells. Yeah, but first up, I'm going to tell you some previous ones that are going to help set a standard that maybe will help you guess some things. So, the cantrip... I like to think that'll help, but it probably won't. The cantrip light is Lux. The cantrip shocking grasp is Zizit. Um, Uh... Flame blade is shoof, and charm person is babin. Let's see how that does for us. Okay. Okay. Boosh. This is one you heard in game pretty recently. Is that a fireball? Hell yeah! It's your first one. Yeah. Um. Uh, Zazow. Thou? Zazow. Uh, Zazow, is that uh, lightning bolt? Nope. Is lightning Call bolt... lightning? Lightning bolt isn't. Oh, uh, lightning, sorry. Lightning bolt. Oh, weird, it's not It's here. a third level evocation, isn't it? Oh, no, sorry, I, I missed it. <laughs> no, it's, it is called lightning, though. My bad. For some nice. reason, I, I wasn't seeing it. Uh, Zazash. Sazash. Um, so wait, that was the last one was called lightning. Is this one lightning bolt? Yeah. Yeah. Zashi. Zashi. Um, let's see, what have I got? Zashi. Is this one uh, Sleet Storm? No. Zashi. 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 Uh, protection from energy. No. Wind wall? Uh, no, it is... Oh, I'm sorry, I clicked the wrong button. But, um... It is lightning arrow. Lightning arrow. Yeah. Uh, Dang it. 
Zauban. Zauban. Oh, actually, here I can give a clue. Uh, Blade Ward was Baban, the cantrip. Zauban. Ah. Zauban. It's something Zauban. you guessed earlier. Oh my gosh. Um, I never keep track of what I guessed and got wrong. It was something where, like, when I you when I was saying Zashi, you guessed it, and I was like, "Ooh, this is close." Zalban. Oh, uh, pr protection from energy. There you go. Yeah, you're doing, you're doing better than ever this one. I see because we've got. Oh, you're giving me a lot of hints. <laughs> well, but I th I think it really helps that you actually have some previous spells to go by at this point yeah. like it used to be i just say some words at you and you do your best to guess but this one i can actually say like well this is this so that might tell you um so i said uh baben was charm person so let's try uh bazine bazine is that uh clairvoyance no i'll tell you you're, you're in the right school oh, interesting uh tongues yes you got it hey uh and let's do banda Banda. I'm gonna say conjure animals just because i want you to conjure a panda oh, no unfortunately banda I guess the hint here would that would be would be that we're sticking with like charm person uh tongues it's all like communication stuff. Yeah, uh Baben Spazine Banda. Banda is that uh healing mass healing word? No. No, no. Oh, uh, speak with plants? No. Speak with dead? No. <laughs> Sending? Yep, that's it. Hey. One of my favorites. <laughs> Very important, I would say. Um, Let's see, are there any... Oh, uh, one I, I gave you the clue for, but I forgot to do. Luxor. Luxor. Luxor is I'm like just going up and down this list of uh Do you know what do you spells. remember what Lux was? The hint? Yeah, it was light, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Luxor. It's Is that uh major image? No. Oh, daylight. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um I got some other ones here that are just kind of fun uh that I'm not sure I have a lot of like um previous setup for. I think I've done most of the ones that like you would get from their previous uh sort of things. I guess um on the on the sort of defensive level of like uh baban and uh zauban we have uh balnan dispel magic 
No. Bowman. Um, it's a defensive match. Remove curse. Nope. Magic circle. No. No. I used my guesses. It's glyph um, of warding. Glyph of warding. Ah, interesting. Uh, so then I think I've just got some like sort of fun ones. Uh, shoo, shoo. Uh, it's got to be some sort of uh, some sort of ranged attack spell from the sound mm, of it. Not exactly. Oh, not quite. Maybe blink. Is it blink? Oh, you're. I think you're close. Um, haste. Uh, no. <laughs> Shoo! It's gosh. Uh, what is shoo? Throw your fist into the air and shoo! Oh, fly! <laughs> yeah, it's fly. Um, path. Stinking cloud. No, close though. I would say wind wall. No, you're on the right track. Sleet storm. Nope, nope. You're getting too solid now. Oh, is that blink? No. Oh God. Uh, gaseous form. Yes, it's gaseous yeah. form though. Blink does have a similarly short, quick one, which is Jad. Jad. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think that's most of the good ones that I see here. Um, I guess I'll I'll try two more, but these don't really have any good clues. Um, okay. Uh, I guess Claroth. Claroth. Clairvoyance. No. Think about... No, that one's too stupid. You'll never get it. It's... Uh, Claroff is animate dead, and when I see it, I think of Boris Karlov. Ah. Uh, okay, okay. <laughs> the other thing... Uh, this is sort of on the same line of, like, uh, horror-themed, maybe, but Ghoulin. Is that vampiric touch? No. I know. Spirit Guardians. No. Fear. Yep. There you go. Gulin. And uh, I think that's about it. I mean, I can tell you some of the ones you... Are there any that you're curious about? There's one that I need to know, Tom. What is it? Tiny Hut. Tiny Hut is Etorn. Etorn. (laughs) Etorn. And what about Tiny Banana Stand? Alphrobaz. Oh, I don't know if there's a hey. tiny banana stand. There's just a medium-sized banana stand, and that's uh, that's Alphrobaz. So, uh, I figure that's a good, solid episode of comparing campaign with all the classics. Say so. Um, if you want to get in touch with us or just follow us, keep track of when we have episodes up. I post them on our Facebook page comparing campaign on facebook you can follow us like us all that and uh 
If you want to see our show notes, links to stuff we talk about, like uh, the PDF for Thousand Years Under the Sun, uh, streams of the mini campaigns we're playing in, um, dungeon modules, uh, screenshots, like like pictures of my little doodles and maps, that can all be found on comparingcampaign.wordpress.com, our supplemental materials page. We haven't been in Drail in a while, but you can also get a map of Drail at the like very start of that blog. But it's haunted, so don't steal. Not me. Hey, no, no, you, you gotta, you can't just take my old catchphrase <laughs> when I take a new one. <laughs> Level up your character, get that ding. Yeah, like I think you have two. I think I'm entitled to have two at this point now. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's just such a good response. You say, don't steal, and I go, not me. Uh, but I'm the one who should say, I'm the one who should say that, not you. Well, I'll be leveling up my character then. <laughs>